Hello, I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's time to turn to today's obituaries from the Des Moines Register. We have almost three full pages today, so keep listening. Dean E. Calkins Sr. from Des Moines, age 71, uh, died Monday, May 4th, at home, surrounded by his family. Dean was born May 17, 1948, in Des Moines to William and Ruby Cross Calkins. He attended East High School before joining the U.S. Army. He served in Vietnam from 1966 to 1969. After living in Ohio and Texas, he returned to Des Moines in 1984. He worked as a serviceman for Wilbert Vault Company and later as a truck driver for Architectural Arts. Dean liked being outdoors, fishing, gardening, grilling, and riding his Harley. He whittled, drew pictures, and enjoyed woodworking. Louis L'Amour Western novels and Old West movies rounded out his interests. Dean was devoted to his family and especially spending time with his grandchildren. Those left to cherish his memory include wife Vicki Ledley Collins of Des Moines, five children, Dean Jr., Shane, and spouse Danielle, Brandon, Megan Calkins, and spouse Rick Heimbaugh, Alex, and spouse Crystal, all of Des Moines, six stepchildren, eight grandchildren, and 16 step-grandchildren, numerous step-great-grandchildren, siblings Linda Crawford, Jimmy, spouse Debbie, Ray, Dale, spouse Debbie, and numerous nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents and four siblings, William, Janet, Cheryl, and Sandy McFarland. The family wishes to thank Wesley Life, especially Chris, Wendy, Elizabeth, and Emily for their kindness and care. Due to the 10-person gathering limit, an intermittent visitation will be held for Dean from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Friday, May 8th at Grandview Park Chapel, 3211 Hubble Avenue, Des Moines, Iowa, 50317. Attendees will remain in their vehicles in line under the portico and enter the building for viewing once the car in front of them has exited. Dean's funeral service will be live-streamed on Friday, May 8th around 1.30 p.m., from Grandview Park Funeral Home. A link will be shared shortly before 1.30 p.m. at the top of his obituary on the Isles Funeral Home's website, www.islescares.com. Interment in the veteran section of Laurel Hill Cemetery in Des Moines will follow the funeral service. Mary Fazio, known as Tish, of Des Moines, age 85, passed away May 4th at the Iowa Jewish Senior Life Center. Tish was born April 27, 1935, in Des Moines, to Dominic and Francis Marasco. She enjoyed cooking and baking, especially Italian cookies. Tish was the life of the party and loved hosting holiday dinners. She enjoyed fine dining and traveling with her husband, Sam. She was grateful for her wonderful neighbors, especially Anna, Becky, and Chris. Their love and friendship was a big part of her life. Tish lived for her grandkids and loved spending time with all of her family. She was a devout Catholic and a lifelong member of St. Anthony Catholic Church and the Altar and Rosary Society. Tish was also a member of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. Tish is survived by her daughter Mary Fran, Cardamone, and spouse John, grandchildren Natalie Brown and spouse Tony, Sammy Cardamone and Christina Cardamone, great-grandchildren Charlie Rose Brown and Jackson Brown, brother Bobby Morasco and spouse Donna, 
as well as many nieces, nephews, extended family, and dear friends. She was preceded in death by her husband, Sam Fazio, son, Sammy Joe Fazio, and her siblings, Virgida Vonk, Peter Morasco, and Ned Morasco. Due to COVID-19 restrictions limiting public gatherings to 10 people or less, Tish's visitation and funeral mass at St. Anthony Catholic Church will be private. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Memorial contributions may be directed to St. Anthony Catholic Church or Hospice of the Midwest in loving memory of Tish. The family would like to extend a sincere thank you to their cousin, Teresa Ann Weston. Her devotion and tender care over the last two years of Tish's life will never be forgotten. A heartfelt thank you to the entire staff at the Iowa Jewish Life Senior Center. The family will always be grateful for their compassionate care and dedication. Also, a special thank you to Tish's hospice nurse Erin and CNA Morgan for the exceptional care she received. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Paul W. Thurston, 75, died April 30th at Willowbrook Memory Care in Savoy, in much the same way that he lived, holding the hand of the love of his life of 49 years, Kathy. Although he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's many years prior to his death, the energy and determination with which he lived transcended that disease. He will long be remembered not just by his wife, four children, and their spouses, his 11 grandchildren, his beloved brothers, and other family members, but also by the friends, colleagues, students, and players who had the privilege of knowing him along the way. Paul was born June 27, 1944, in Ames, as the second of four sons of Orville W. Thurston and Jean Calmer Thurston. He married Catherine Osborne Thurston in 1970. She survives. Also surviving are his brothers, Stan Thurston and spouse Dottie of Des Moines, and Lloyd Thurston and spouse Allison of Broomfield, Colorado. A daughter, Rachel Goddard and spouse Jeff of Carmel, Indiana. Three sons, Paul W. Thurston Jr. and spouse Ramona Powell of Chicago. Michael Thurston and spouse Nicole Griglioni of Heartland, Wisconsin. And Daniel Thurston and spouse Ashley of Eden Prairie, Minnesota as well as 11 grandchildren, Sarah, Marin, Eliana, Thomas, Ella, Madeline, Josephine, Elizabeth, Emmeline, Luke, and Vivian. Also surviving are six nephews, Adam, Ben, Nate, Thomas, Jack, and Will Thurston, and six stepnieces and nephews, Kelly Whiting, Abby Hodgson, Molly Harris, and Brianne Lauren, and Alex Bumpus. Paul was preceded in death by his parents, his older brother Gary of Wakefield, Rhode Island, and an infant grandchild, Hannah. Other family members mourning his death are Kathy's brothers, John Osborne of Santa Monica, California, and Bill Osborne, spouse Ann McArdle of Washington, D.C., and their daughters, Elena and Kara Osborne. Paul graduated from Marshalltown High School in Iowa, where he excelled in basketball. He was a two-time Iowa State champion, football, and golf, and was governor of Iowa Boys State. He graduated from Grinnell College in 1967, where he was named All-Conference Defensive End and still holds a football school record. In 1969, he received a master's degree in history from Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. 
During this period, Paul trained with the Peace Corps, served inner-city youth with Outward Bound, Upward Bound, and Eastern Kentucky with Vista Volunteers, and spent six months on an economic development research project in Costa Rica. This commitment to social justice inspired him to devote his life to support public education and train its future leaders. Returning to the Midwest, Paul obtained J.D. and Ph.D. degrees from the University of Iowa in Law and Educational Administration in 1974 and 75. He then served the University of Illinois' Department of Organization and Educational Leadership for 28 years, from 1974 to 2002, in various roles, including professor and department head. He was the executive secretary of the Illinois Association of School Personnel Administrators, the director of the Office of Professional Development and Public Service, and from 1990 to 1993, the director of the National Center for School Leadership. He was also a member of the University of Illinois Senate. Even after he retired in 2002, he continued teaching part-time, consulted on national school superintendent searches, with Hazard, Young, Atia, and when asked, came out of retirement to serve as interim department head. Paul was prolific and innovative. Together with his esteemed colleagues, he implemented numerous new programs, school executive leadership, special executive doctoral programs, new principals assistance program, a joint degree program in law and education, and online courses as early as 1998. He was called upon to mediate contract disputes between teachers' unions and school boards. Professor Thurston was the dissertation director for more than 40 doctoral dissertations. He wrote or edited nine books and over 35 research papers or technical reports related to school leadership. He also received numerous awards, including the 2007 Van Miller Award for Outstanding Contributions Through Leadership in Education in Illinois the Excellence in Campus Teaching Award, and the Distinguished Achievement Award from the Education Administration Alumni Association. Those who knew Paul were struck by the intensity with which he lived. There was never a competition that was too trivial. Family bridge nights became exercises in mental fortitude. He was a low-post force to be reckoned with during neighborhood basketball games. He brought a wicked slice to the tennis court. While Paul accomplished so much professionally, he cared most about the quality of his relationships with others. Lying just beyond his fiery disposition, Paul had the tenderest of hearts. He read, sang, and doled out back rubs to his children. He sat with them on the screened-in porch to watch summer storms blow in. He supported them unilaterally. He took pride in his rose bushes, and he loved being outdoors, including his daily runs, hiking in Allerton Park, biking, which was his commute, skiing, golfing, tennis, and canoeing in the Canadian Boundary Waters. Paul was an active member of both St. Matthew's and St. Mary's Catholic parishes. His Iowa farm background shaped his priorities, including the value he placed on family, hard work, community, humility, frugality, and service. Donations may be made to the University of Illinois Foundation's Paul W. Thurston Scholarship Fund, supporting graduate students in educational and organizational leadership. The website for that is uif.u 
illinois.edu slash give hyphen online semicolon hashtag seven seven four nine five zero or the Alzheimer's Association. A gathering to celebrate Paul's life will be held at a later date. Morgan Funeral Home in Savoy is handling arrangements and condolences may be offered at www.morganmemorialhome.com slash obituary. Rosemary Collins of Des Moines, age 85, went to be with the Lord on May 6th. Rosemary was born May 5th, 1935, in Des Moines to Daniel and Ethel Jones. She was the youngest of 10 children. She grew up in the Southeast Bottoms, where everyone was poor, but nobody knew it. She married Robert E. Collins, Sr. in 1951. Together, they had five children. She was a homemaker, except for about four years when she worked in the Des Moines Public Schools cafeterias and for holiday for two years. She was creative and very good at whatever she put her hands to. She was especially known for the baby outfits she made for all the baby showers through the years and also for the wedding cakes she did. She loved to decorate her yard for the holidays and many people enjoyed her handiwork throughout the years. She was preceded in death by her parents and siblings, her husband Robert, son Daniel, grandson Donald, and her granddaughter Talitha. She is survived by her children, Robert Collins Jr. and spouse Penny, James Collins and spouse Lynette, Roy Collins, and Janet Rose Frederick. Nine grandchildren, 16 great-grandchildren, four great-great-grandchildren, many other children that she is, quote, grandma to. Sister-in-law, Dorothy Tharp, several nieces, nephews, and other extended family, and special friends, Jane and Susie. There will be a graveside service Friday, May 8th at Glendale Cemetery in Des Moines at 1 p.m. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Lieutenant Colonel Retired James R. Fitch of Fairfax, Virginia, formerly of Lorimore, passed into the arms of our Lord Sunday, April 26th. He is survived by his wife, Marilyn, four children, Angela Fitch, James Fitch Jr., Kimberly Fitch, and Katherine Jensen. Two siblings, Tom Fitch and Judy Cook, and seven grandchildren, Christian and Jacob Legorio, Shannon Fitch, Haley Fitch, and Timothy, Catherine, and Rebecca Jensen. A viewing will be held at 12 p.m. at the Methodist Church in Lorimer, Iowa, on Saturday, May 9th. The funeral service will follow immediately at 1. Pastor Jim Morris will officiate. Military graveside rites will be performed by the Offutt Air Force Honor Guard at the Lorimore Cemetery following the service. The Powers Funeral Home of Creston is in charge of arrangements. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be sent to the family or provided online on the tribute wall at www.powersfh.com. Laureen Bryles of Des Moines, age 100, passed away at Wesley Acres, in Des Moines on May 4th after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. Left to cherish her memory are her sons, Dr. Ed Bryles and spouse Brenda of Idaho, Dr. James Bryles of Florida, Dr. Tom Bryles and spouse Cindy of Kansas, and her daughter, Dory Bryles and spouse Jim of Des Moines. Laureen delighted in her grandchildren, Tyler, Elena, Calvin, Kristen, Curtis, Bryles, Lily, Hannah, Kimball, and Pender. 
preceding Laureen in death, were siblings Jimmy, Vaughn, Clifford, and Wanda Lee, daughter Mary, and daughters-in-law Anita and Kathleen. A service will be held at the Pearson Family Funeral Service and Cremation Center in Corning, Iowa, at 1 p.m. Saturday, May 9th. The family wishes to thank the staff of Wesley Acres and Wesley Life Hospice for their compassionate care. Memorial contributions can be made to the Wesley Life Good Samaritan Fund or Wesley Life Hospice. Thomas Allen Catron, known as Snappy, of Adele, age 65, passed away May 1st. A graveside service will be held at Panther Creek Cemetery, west of Adele, on Saturday, May 9th at 2 p.m. Tom is survived by his wife, Terry, son, Alex, and spouse, Karen, son, Andrew, daughter-in-law, Kendra, grandchildren, Madison, Casey, Caden, Calvin, and Carmen, siblings, Shirley Cochran and Jerry Catron, he was preceded in death by his parents, Arthur and Shar Catron, and sons, Jeremy and Casey. Online condolences may be left at www.caldwellparish.com. J. Daniels, J.S. Daniels of West Des Moines, passed away from COVID-19 on May 5th at the age of 92. He graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree in economics and was an officer of Ross Daniels, Incorporated until his retirement. He was active in and was a past master of the Gazig Masonic Temple and Scottish Rite, holding a 32nd degree, as well as being a past president of Temple Benaish Jeshroon. Jay was devoted to his family and was preceded in death by his loving wife of 58 years, Marlene. They had wonderful times together and traveled to all seven continents. Jay is survived by his children, Karen, spouse Ron Pierce, and Ross, spouse Amy Ward, his grandchildren, Becky and David Ford, and a brother, Clark Daniels. Services will be held, will be private, but may be viewed online at www.islescares.com at 1 p.m. Central Time, Thursday, May 7th. Contributions in his memory may be made to Temple Benai Jeshroon, www.templebnaijeshroon.org. The Des Moines Area Religious Council, www.dmarcmarcunited.org, or the Alzheimer's Association www.alz.org. Services for James William Fuller of Norwalk will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, May 9th at O'Leary Funeral Services in Norwalk. Burial will follow in Sunset Cemetery. A visitation will be held Friday, May 8th from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. at O'Leary Funeral Services. James William Fuller, the youngest son born to Harvey David and Mildred Dawn Custard Fuller, was born on October 18, 1950, in Des Moines. Jim grew up on Des Moines' south side near Blank Park Zoo. He attended Lincoln High School, during which time he met Kathleen Marie Mills. They fell in love and were later married on February 10, 1968, at the Fort Des Moines Open Bible Church. To this union, they had two children, Jeff and Julie, and made their home in Des Moines. In 1975, they moved their family to Lakewood. 
Norwalk. Jim worked for 37 and a half years for the USPS as a mail carrier for the West Des Moines and South Des Moines stations. He finished the last few years of his career at the Des Moines Metro Annex, retiring in 2006. Jim and Kathy were Iowa Hawkeye and KC Chiefs fans and loved tailgating with family and friends. He enjoyed yard work, boating, and spending time with family. For two and a half years, Jim diligently fought cancer. He died peacefully Saturday morning, May 2nd, surrounded by his wife and children. He was preceded in death by both sets of grandparents and his father. Those left to, to continue his legacy include his wife, Kathy, his children, Jeff Fuller and spouse La of Dexter, and Julie Bates and spouse Michael of Norwalk. His mother, Mildred Mathias of Des Moines, a brother, Ron and spouse Sandy of Indianola, 13 grandchildren, six great-grandchildren, and a host of other family and friends. Richard Allen Heck of West Des Moines, age 66, went home to be with the Lord on May 1st. The son of Edgar John Heck and Elizabeth Ann Heck was born on September 25, 1953, in Mitchell, South Dakota. In his youth, he enjoyed playing baseball and spending time with his sister Diane. He graduated from Valley High School in 1971. Richard was a devoted Catholic and very strong in his religious beliefs. He attended church frequently at Sacred Heart Church and Lutheran Church of Hope. In 1973, Richard met Sandra Lou Leonard, and they married in 1975. During their 20-year marriage, they had four children, Christina, Stephen, Matthew, and Alexandra. Richard always worked hard in everything he did in life. He worked in the family business, installing floor coverings for 35 years. He also worked for the United States Post Office for five years. He also worked for R&R Donnelly as a bindery operator before finally taking a position working alongside his son Stephen for 18 years, helping him at Diamond Car Wash until his death. He enjoyed bowling, going to movies, vacationing with his family, and visiting the Iowa State Fair. His greatest joy overall in life was spending time with his son Stephen and daughter Alexandra. His parents, Edgar and Elizabeth, and his children, Christina and Matthew Heck, preceded Richard in death. Those left to honor Richard's memory is his ex-spouse, Sandra Heck of West Des Moines, children, Stephen Heck and Alexandra Pierce, spouse Mike, sister Diane Fontanini and spouse George, and nephews, Justin, spouse Claudia, and Jared Fontanini, spouse Misty. Visitation will be from 12 noon to 2 p.m. on Friday, May 8th at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines with a prayer service and burial following at Rest Haven Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be given in his name to McLaren's. Daniel McCool, age 60, of West Des Moines, passed away on Monday, May 4th. Private family service will be held on Friday, May 8th. Dan was born on August 31, 1959, in Clarion, Iowa, to Robert and Kitty McCool. After high school, Dan dedicated his life to the sport of wrestling. He enjoyed many sports, but wrestling was number one for him. He began his journalism career as a reporter-photographer in North Dakota, then moved on to Knoxville, and eventually to the Cedar Falls record. Following that, he was able to spend 30 years as a reporter for the Des Moines Register, 
where he covered wrestling at the high school, college, and international level. He also reported on baseball, football, and boxing, among other sports. Following his newspaper career, he had the opportunity to write three books about wrestling in Iowa, most notably chronicling 100 years of the Iowa High School State Tournament. His toughest challenge on winter weekends during wrestling season was picking just one, or two if he could, wrestling tournament to attend. If he could have been at all of them at once, he would have. Dan was always concerned about doing good for the sport of wrestling and shied away from the personal recognition people often wanted to give him for his work. He also loved oldies music, photography, and travel, both for business and pleasure. Dan was preceded in death by his parents, Robert and Kitty McCool. Survivors include his wife, Diane, of West Des Moines, and four brothers, Pat McCool, spouse Kathy, of Lino Lakes, Minnesota, Tom McCool and spouse Lynette of Wausau, Wisconsin, Terry McCool and spouse Kathy of Maple Grove, Minnesota, and Mike McCool and spouse Diane of Bettendorf. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions can be made to the Animal Rescue League of Iowa or to the family for a scholarship fund to be established in his honor. Bruce Lee Megason Bruce Lee Megason received his heavenly reward on May 4, 2020, at the age of 90. Bruce was born in Guthrie Center to Albert and Wilma Megason. He attended Des Moines Lincoln High School, where he met his wife of 65 years. Bruce worked as a maintenance mechanic at Pittsburgh, Des Moines Steel, Massey Ferguson, and Fawn Manufacturing. He is preceded in death by his parents, brother, and wife. He is survived by two children, Kathy Franker and spouse Norm, Gary Megason and spouse Cindy. Grandchildren, Matthew, spouse Beth Franker, Jeremy Franker and spouse Kara, Jordan Decker and spouse Joel, Jared Megason and spouse Carson, eight great-grandchildren and a sister, Janice. A graveside funeral and burial will be Saturday, May 9th at 1.30 at Sunset Memorial Gardens. Memorials may be made to Mercy One Hospice House in Johnston or Simple Church in Clive, Iowa. William Ernest Phillips Sr. of Des Moines, known as Bill, was born December 14, 1937, in Creston, the son of Ernest Donald and Arlena Vondine Black Phillips. He departed to be with his Lord and Savior on May 3rd at the VA Medical Center in Des Moines. Bill married Mary Frances Fry in 1955 in West Des Moines, and to this union, four sons were born. Mary passed away in 1997, and Bill remarried Nancy D. Clayton in 2002. Bill served in the United States Air Force and was a member of the Iowa Aviation Heritage Museum in Ankeny, which he helped get off the ground. He loved his military. He worked for many years at Firestone Tire and Rubber Plant, retiring in 1991. He was a member of Berean Assembly of God in Pleasant Hill. Bill loved restoring old cars, would find a junk heap in some field and make it into a shiny new old car. His talent for restoring cars was known by many. Bill loved his family and was known as a jokester to them, telling his nieces that when they turned 16, he would give them whatever car, street rod, he had, and, of course, he would sell it before they turned 16. The family has many fond memories of Bill. 
Bill was preceded in death by his first wife, Mary, three sons, Bobby Dean, Robert Kenneth, and Forrest Scott. His parents, Ernest and Arlena, and two sisters, Patricia McNeely and Sharon McNeely. Left to remember Bill are his wife, Nancy, son, William E. Phillips, Jr., grandchildren, Chris Phillips and spouse Brianna of Altoona, Matt Phillips and spouse Kirby of Des Moines, and Mary Beth Young and spouse James of Wood Village, Oregon. Brother-in-law, David McNeely of Altoona, five great-grandchildren, one step-great-grandchild, and many cousins, nieces, nephews, and many friends. There will be a graveside committal service on Monday, May 11th at Sunset Memorial Gardens in Des Moines at 10 a.m. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Judith D. Nipper, aged 83, died Sunday, May 3rd. She was our friend, our confidant, our greatest advocate, and most importantly, our mom. She was completely selfless. By example, she taught us to work hard, play hard, respect everyone, and at every opportunity, laugh, especially at ourselves. It would be impossible to completely describe the impact she has had on us all, and we are devastated she is gone. We love you, Mom. Say hi to everyone. We will remember your smile, your laugh, your hugs, and the unyielding confidence you gave us by being in our corner. In lieu of flowers, please send a donation in her name to your favorite charity. Given the COVID crisis, services will be planned at a later date. Ina Mary Robertson of Des Moines was born on June 28, 1920 in Sheraton to George and Josephine Ripperger. She passed away peacefully at home on May 2nd at the age of 99. A private mass of Christian burial will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday, May 9th at All Saints Catholic Church, 650 Northeast 52nd Avenue in Des Moines with burial to follow at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Visitation will be held Friday evening from 4 to 7 p.m. at Hamilton's near Highland Memory Gardens, 121 Northwest 60th Avenue, Des Moines. We kindly ask you to be mindful of your time greeting the family as we must work within the COVID-19 restrictions. Ina is survived by her son, Greg Blackford, 14 grandchildren, 25 great-grandchildren, and 14 great-great-grandchildren, four stepchildren, Lisa, David, Mike, and Rich Roberson, brother Charles Ripperger, daughter-in-law Kay Blackford, as well as many step-grandchildren and step-great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her husband James and three sons, Dick, Les, and Steve Blackford. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Animal Rescue League in honor of Ina. Ina. Online condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Grace D. Thompson of Norwalk, age 94, passed away April 5th. She requested cremation, and there will be a graveside service for family and friends at a later date. Grace was born February 5th, 1926, in Glidden, Iowa, to Matilda and Ernest Lotion. She married Harvey Thompson, August 6, 1943, and to their union they had four sons, Tommy, Jeffrey, Michael, and Scott. Grace is survived by Tommy, Michael, Scott, and Deborah Thompson, eight grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, two sisters, brother, husband, and son, Jeffrey. 
Ronald Wayne Trump Sr. of Perry, age 76, died April 25th at Methodist Hospital in Des Moines of organ failure not related to COVID-19. A memorial service may be scheduled at a later date. Interment of the cremains will be at Martin Cemetery, Grundy County, Missouri, at a later date. Mr. Trump was born April 15, 1944, in Grundy County, Missouri, the son of Floyd G. Trump and Marjorie M. Murphy. He was married to Gwenda C. Sherwood on April 5, 1973, in Trenton, Missouri. Growing up in Trenton, Ron participated in soapbox derbies and was a member of Boy Scout Troop 99. As an adult, he became a Boy Scout leader and eventually Scoutmaster of Troop 141 in Woodward, where he helped at least four young men, including his son, become Eagle Scouts. He enlisted in the Air Force in May of 1965 and was sent to England as a fuel specialist and instructor. He received an honorable discharge in May of 1969. He started his computer career at Trenton Trust Bank, learning the punch card system after he graduated from Trenton Junior College. After graduating from Des Moines Community College, he became a computer programmer analyst for the state of Iowa for several years. When he retired, he continued to work at his favorite hobby, kettle corn. He traveled all over the Midwest to different events that included rendezvous and renaissance fairs and was frequently seen at Living History Farms. In his free time, he continued to travel a little closer to home to see his grandchildren play in sports. Survivors include his wife, Grant, Gwen, and three children, Danelle and Ron Stiber family of Lansing, Sherry and Rodney Meyer family of Oskaloosa, and Ronald Trump Jr. and April Pepper family of Des Moines. This includes 13 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. Two sisters, Vicki and Jay Griffin of Coffee, Missouri, and Deborah and Terry Hamilton of Gallatin, Missouri, and several cousins, nieces, and nephews. Mr. Trump is preceded in death by his parents and his brother, Michael Dean Trump. David J. Waltz passed peacefully from this world on April 30th, surrounded by his family. Dave was born in New Hampton and grew up in Fredericksburg. He was preceded in death by his parents, Harold and Virginia Waltz. He is survived by his wife, Teresa Porto, and their three children and families, Brett and Rebecca Waltz and Josephine and Wyatt, Jessica Waltz and Tom Brown, and Fiona Kristen and Tim Para and Max, Sam, and Grace. Sister Diane and her husband Richard Johnson, who was Dave's lifelong friend. Sister Suzanne Waltz and sister Nancy Klinsky. Dave loved life and lived it well. He loved to tell stories of his youth in Iowa at his grandparents' farm and his father's grocery store. He graduated from Iowa State University, where his fascination with history and his love for Teresa began. He lived in Des Moines, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, raised his family in Connecticut, where he lived for over 30 years, and lived out his retirement by the beach on Singer Island, Florida. It was also in Connecticut that Dave created a whole new family, his colleagues and employees at G.H. Berlin Oil. Under Dave's leadership, G.H.B. grew from a small local distributor based in Hartford, Connecticut, to one of the largest lubricant companies in the country. During those two decades, Dave was known for his focus on, compassion for, 
appreciation of, and dedication to the employees that helped him run and grow the company. Dave was almost larger than life. He loved to travel and share those experiences with family and friends and had just booked a trip to Antarctica in 2022 to cross the final continent off his bucket list. He loved Yukon men's and women's basketball, Yukon football, and the New York Yankees. He also maintained a soft spot for the Iowa State Cyclones. He and Teresa shared a passion for duplicate bridge and became life masters together. He loved negotiating a good deal, especially at a tag sale, and he loved telling others about his great friends, finds. He loved good food and having a few drinky poos. He had a huge sense of humor that was appreciated by many and endured by some. He had a big personality and similarly big opinions to share, some of which weren't always easy to hear, but most of which were worth their weight in gold. Above all, Dave was a generous and steadfast husband, father, brother, grandfather, friend, and citizen. He impacted everyone he came into contact with, and even some he never knew, and his loss will be felt by many. Dave's time ended too soon. He was ready to celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary with Teresa in August and his 75th birthday in September. He had more bridge to play, more pools to swim in, more places to visit, and more wisdom to pass on. We should have anticipated that Dave's love of quick and strategic exits would carry him to the great beyond that that way as well. Because of the current national situation, no memorial services are planned at the present time. However, when social distancing rules have been relaxed, we hope to gather for a celebration of life. In lieu of gifts or flowers, please consider making a donation in David's name to Food Share of Greater Hartford, the Palm Beach County Food Bank, or to your local food bank, as this need was close to Dave's heart and on his mind in his final weeks. It's time now for a couple articles from the sports section from the Register. Our first will be the column from Travis Hines, titled, Iowa State AD is Optimistic About College Sports Return. Last month, after instituting a 10% pay cut nearly across the board, and seeing the cessation of activities and on-campus classes, the Iowa State Athletic Department decided it needed to begin to chart a path forward, despite all the uncertainties of the COVID-19 pandemic. We had an all-staff meeting, ISU Athletic Director Jamie Pollard said Tuesday, and we talked about, we're done treading water, we've got to start swimming to shore. The first step was to put together a tentative schedule with an eye toward the resumption of the football season and other fall sports, starting as scheduled in September. That calendar is subject to change as the facts and circumstances about the pandemic change, but in order to truly begin moving forward, ISU felt it needed some guideposts to start working toward. This doesn't mean these are the dates that that are going to happen, Pollard said but let's all start acting like these are the dates that are going to happen. It started in earnest this month with a group of about 25 student athletes being allowed access to the training room to rehabilitate injuries and give ISU a sense of how it will need to proceed with caring for and working with athletes during a pandemic. Then the plan is as follows. 
June 1, Athletic Department staff returns to offices with social distancing protocols. July 1, football players begin to report back to campus. July 15th, football practices start. August 1, non-football fall sports participants return to campus to begin practice. Late August, winter and spring sport athletes return to campus to coincide with the start of the academic year. That was the framework we used, Pollard said. It doesn't mean we have any information that anyone else doesn't have, but people needed to know and answer for, what is this going to look like? It means no on-campus summer training for sports like men's and women's basketball, which, under recently changed NCAA legislation, would have otherwise occurred. All our energies have to be on getting football first and the fall sports second, Pollard said. I think it was important for those coaches and student-athletes to hear that. Just as if the facts on the ground were to change, that would push that timeline out. ISU is also receptive to changes that would speed it up. We've already started to see nationally, and some with our staff maybe. Football can come back before July 1st, question mark, Pollard said. Should football be able to be played on time? There remains the question of if fans will be in attendance or if social distancing protocols will limit large gatherings. What is ultimately allowed and what fans feel comfortable with, from both health and financial perspectives, will have enormous financial ramifications for athletic departments across the country. Pollard and his staff have begun to work on plans for how football could have fans in attendance while still following social distancing, starting with the possibility of allowing fans in suites. And if suites are a possibility, more might be as well. Then you start peeling it back that way and go, okay, what does the club section look like, Pollard said. Could you do one out of every six seats? Could you do 10,000 to 15,000 seats in the stadium? And could those be people that are based on donations, so you incentivize people to continue to make donations? ISU has modeled a scenario where no fans are in attendance, but Pollard said he doesn't see that as a very likely possibility. We're looking into, let's model no fans, he said. But when does somebody nationally say, rather than do that, let's go to the spring? I don't know. That's an option on the table. Spring football, though, is not without its serious drawbacks. I think most would say the spring has its own set of problems and is the last resort, Pollard said. On the financial side, the sports television partners, who drive the big money in college sports, might not be on board. There's just not probably going to be an abundance of television windows that aren't already occupied, Pollard said. Then there's the health and safety concern. That's a lot of football to play in the spring and follow up with another fall, Pollard said. What about the young man that gets hurt and then can't rehab in time for the next season? So if you blow out your knee, is that two seasons instead of one? Or do you end up injuring somebody because you haven't played back-to-back seasons? Those are some safety questions that we'd all like to try to avoid if we could. Perhaps the fundamental question to consider is what happens if a football player tests positive? We have had the discussion of your game next Saturday. They have an outbreak. So are we not going to play that game? Pollard said. Those are some of the discussions that will start to take place in greater earnestness in the next several weeks. 
I think you've got to go into it with your eyes wide open. I don't think any coach would love to hear that, but we're going to have to have that cloud hanging over whatever we do if we start in the fall. And while all timelines are tentative, there is a belief that answers could start to be found in the coming weeks. I think by the middle of June, Pollard said, we're going to know what we're going to do for September. And also in sports, Centennial Standout preps for Iowa after lost season. This is written by Adam Hensley. Ankeny Centennial Hurdler and Iowa Track and Field Comet, Katie Peterson, should be in state meet preparation mode at this time. The universe had other plans, though. Peterson, along with most student-athletes across the country competing in a spring sport, saw her senior season fall through after the spread of COVID-19 forced schools to shut down for the year. Something I was looking forward to was being able to walk off the track for my high school career one last time with those teammates, and now I don't get to do that, Peterson said. That was hard, but I know there are other people who have lost bigger things at this time than track season and school, so I'm fortunate I'm still healthy and my family's still healthy. Peterson entered 2020 as one of the state's top hurdlers. She helped break four centennial records, won four medals at the 2019 state meet, and she was poised for what would likely have been a stellar senior campaign before the track season came to a screeching halt. I really can't think of being a part of a more special program, Peterson. Peterson said. We have our own tradition, and it's truly like a family. Everybody pushes each other and supports each other. Definitely something I wish I could have been a part of a little bit longer. In the meantime, Peterson spends her days volunteering at the Animal Rescue League, completing online AP classes, and working out as though she's in the midst of a track season. It's a grind, but she's built for it, according to Centennial track and field coach Drew Kruzich. She's really self-made in a lot of ways, he said. She's got some raw ability, but she works year-round to get better, and it shows. Peterson was a gymnast first before diving headfirst into track her freshman season at Centennial. Injuries derailed her first season, but she made strides as a sophomore before winning four medals at the 2019 state meet as a junior. She made significant improvement to her starts and everything, Kruzic said. I think she's not only missing out on a season, but I think she had a real good shot at a couple of titles this year at Drake and State, which is unfortunate. But while Peterson's time on the track at Centennial ended prematurely, her athletic career is far from over. Peterson will don a Hawkeye uniform this upcoming school year, and she's set to join the University of Iowa track and field team. Led by head coach Joey Woody, both the men's and women's programs at Iowa ranked in the top 20 this season. The coaches are really good, and Coach Woody has a really good history of his athletes and coaching them. Progress and everything, Peterson said. Iowa got wind of Peterson after she competed with USA Track and Field in the summer of 2019. As the year went on, she got to know Woody and the rest of the Hawkeye Track and Field coaching staff before making it official. On October 23, 2019, Peterson committed to Iowa. I liked the whole atmosphere and environment, and I really liked how I could see myself on my visit, she said. The coaches, they have a family environment. Aside from running track, Peterson said she plans on majoring in human physiology 
and we'll likely add a second major too. Looking now at the date book from the Des Moines Register, the article there is a Mother's Day story. I may not have time to get to all of it. Title, Mother's Day. From afar, resourceful families can show their love. And it's written by Leanne Italy. Treats made and delivered by neighbors. Fresh garden plantings dug from a safe six feet away. Trips around the world set up room to room at home. Mother's Day this year is a mix of love and extra imagination, as families do without their usual brunches and huggy meetups. As the pandemic persists in keeping families indoors or a safe social distance apart, online searches have increased for creative ways to still make moms feel special. Absent help from schools and babysitters, uninitiated dads are on homemade craft duty with the kids. Other loved ones are navigating around no-visitor rules at hospitals and senior living facilities. Some medical facilities are pitching in by collecting voice and video recordings from locked-out relatives when patients are unable to manage the technology on their own. In suburban St. Louis, Steve Turner and his family hope to FaceTime with his 96-year-old mother, Beverly, but they plan something more, too. Her birthday coincides with Mother's Day this year. We're going to create a big Mother's Day birthday banner signed by the kids and grandkids who live here, Turner said. She loves butterflies, and we'll draw some on. We're working with the home to find a place where we can stand outside a window so she can see us. Anna Francesi Gass in New Canaan, Connecticut, is hunkered down with her husband and three kids. The day won't include her mom, who lives nearby. I ordered a bunch of daffodil and tulip bulbs online, and me and the kids are planning to plant them in her flower bed. She can supervise from the window. I just know it will put a huge smile on her face, Francesi Gass said. In Alameda, California, 23-year-old Zaria Zinn is sheltering at home with her parents and younger sister. Knowing how much their mother loves and misses traveling, they're turning their house and neighborhood into a trip around the world with help from decorations and virtual online tours. We made a DIY passport for her, and we're creating stamps for each location, she said. Their itinerary, Machu Picchu, parts Paris and Iceland, with some DIY spa time and a Hollywood-style movie night. Making the most of Mother's Day in isolation is top of mind for Google search users. The company said the term Mother's Day gifts during quarantine recently spiked by 600% in the U.S. among Pinterest's 335 million users. Searches for Mother's Day at home have jumped by 2,971%, the company said. In Rochester, New York, Melissa Muller-Douglas and her 7-year-old daughter, Nora, had planned to get together with mom and daughter friends at a hotel for a Mother's Day sleepover. When it was canceled because of the pandemic, they got busy on Pinterest searching for ideas to bring the party home, just the two of them. They have eye masks with rhinestones to decorate, thread for mother-daughter bracelets, instant film for a photo shoot, and a chocolate fountain purchased at Walmart. Dad and Nora's three-year-old brother will paint together downstairs after a mom-son bike ride earlier in the day. We've repurposed a shimmery tablecloth and made giant flowers out of tissue paper for a photo shoot backdrop. We'll be creating a secret handshake and writing in top-secret journals to each other, Muller Douglas said. We're calling it 
the best day ever slumber party. That brings us to time for Dear Abby. The t- headline on the column today, Teen Chafes Under Dad's Strict Style of Parenting. The letter says, Dear Abby, I am a teenage girl in an average family. I started getting interested in LGBTQ plus and other social justice topics when I was in fifth grade. Since then, I have realized that, among other things, I'm a lesbian, a liberal, and an atheist. This wouldn't be a problem, but my father hates many of the things I am or stand for. He's an extremely conservative, Christian, gun rights person, and he wants me and my brothers to join the military. He constantly pushes me to be the best that I can be, and I try, but his idea of best is very different from mine. I have several mental problems, which resulted in me getting special privileges in school. I use them whenever I can, but it is never enough for him. He keeps searching through my grade book until he finds something new for me to do, regardless of the date it was assigned or whether it can be graded anymore. I have various restrictions on my use of technology, so I can barely contact my friends. It has gotten to the point that I am worried about when I come out and looking forward to college just so I can get away. Please tell me what to do in the meantime, because college is five years away. Signed, Waiting in Virginia. Abby says, Dear Waiting, You and your dad have very different outlooks on life, and that's okay. That said, you must live under his roof for the next five years, so be diplomatic and keep some of your opinions to yourself as long as possible. You may think your father is heavy-handed in parenting you, but has it occurred to you that when he goes through your grade book, he's trying to make sure you know how to work all the problems in it? Placing restrictions on a minor's use of technology is intelligent parenting, at least for someone just entering her teens. Please try to cut him some slack. Recognize there is a bright future ahead of you if you concentrate on your studies to the best of your ability and buckle down now. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Des Moines Register for Thursday, May 7th, 2020. You can hear this show again at 6 p.m. and again at 1 a.m. Recordings are available on our website, iowaradioreading.org. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of Iowans who are print disabled. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 515 243-6833. You can also call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa, 1-877-404-4747. Once again, we want you to know that our program schedule has changed so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon each day. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And finally, the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. 
We will stay with the schedule until further notice. I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's been a pleasure to read for you today. Stay tuned for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.